So as I said before, today we're talking about gratitude, and I'm particularly embarrassed that uh, we're talking about gratitude today, because I didn't know it was Pastor Appreciation Month. That's how in the loop I am. So it feels a little awkward, like I'm about to say, look, y'all need to be more grateful for me. <laughs> but we're not. Well, we're not talking about that today. Uh, we're <laughs> talking about gratitude in a different perspective. Um, and so uh, this morning, I want to take us back to, to the scripture lesson we had this morning. Uh, Jesus is on the move, okay? So a little backstory about what's happening in this narrative. Jesus, up to this point, has been spending all of his time in ministry in the region of Galilee, which is several miles north of, of uh, Jerusalem, and where Jesus was born and grew up and was raised and everything. But Jesus has finally come to uh, acknowledge that it's time to move to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is, is the heart of the matter. Jerusalem is where this is all going to make it, uh, it's all going to make great headwind in the, in the Jesus movement, if you will. And so Jesus and his disciples start moving on to Jerusalem. And while they're going along, passage tells us Jesus passes uh, through a region between Galilee and Samaria. And that's important for context in a little bit. And as he's going along, he enters a village and 10 lepers approach him keeping their distance, they call out saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So Jesus is entering a village and sees perhaps an all too familiar scene. Outside of the village lay a group of people in need. And what's curious is this group of people are obeying the law perfectly. Now what I mean is, in Leviticus, not going to talk too much about Leviticus because everybody loves holiness laws, right? The book of Levit Leviticus talks about how lepers are supposed to act. Can you believe that? How lepers are supposed to act. How people with skin diseases are supposed to behave in the presence of others. One of the rules is you have to keep your distance from clean people. You can't be close to clean people because, you know, you might infect them and they would become unclean and also lepers. And so you can't get near them. But you are allowed to remain uh, outside of city gates and beg for money. That's the place you're allowed to try to make a living. It's outside the city gates and begging for money. And you are allowed to congregate together. You can be there with each other, but you can't be near other people. And so they're obeying the law perfectly, doing exactly what they should be. And they cry out to Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. A curious expression because they don't ask for healing, explicitly at least. They don't specifically say, Jesus, please heal us of our condition. Now Jesus' name is obviously very well known in the region. They see him and can call him by name. And so they know what Jesus has done in the past 17 chapters of Luke. They know what Jesus' ministry looks like. They know that Jesus can heal, but they don't cry out and ask for healing. They cry out and say, have mercy on us. Perhaps this would have been a common expression for lepers asking for uh, donations, for funds, asking, uh, asking for money. Have mercy on us. Help us. And so Jesus says to them, go and show yourself to the priest. Think about that. That's a pretty odd request to ask of anybody out of the blue. There is no rhyme or reason to it. Just Jesus saying, go and show yourself to the priests. Nothing has happened yet. 
All, the, all that has happened is Jesus comes to the village. These people, 10 lepers, ask for, ask for mercy. Jesus says, go to the priests and show yourself. And they do so without question. They're like, of course, that's, that's what we're going to do. You, you say it, that's what we're going to do. And so they go to the priests. Not sure if that was the priests in the temple in Jerusalem or the priests in the temple in Samaria or where they end up walking towards, but they go to the priests, which I can imagine brings up a lot of anxiety for them because remember, they're not allowed to be near clean people and they are definitely not allowed in the Holy of Holies where the priests are. They're not allowed to be in the temple because that's where the holy things are, the clean things, and they are unclean, unholy, and so they're not allowed to be there. But they follow Jesus' order without question and start walking to the priests, and on their way, they become clean. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turns back, runs back to Jesus, praising God in a loud voice, and falls on his face before Jesus, giving thanks. Meanwhile, the other nine of them continue to do as they were told. And Jesus asks, wait, weren't ten of you healed? Why did only one come back? Where are the other nine? And I think this is a little unfair of Jesus to ask because he told the people, go and show yourself to the priests. He didn't add an amendment in there saying, and if you're clean, then come back and give me thanks. Just say, go and show yourself to the priest. And so the people do. I don't think we can say that the other nine are wrong for doing what they were told. They're just following orders. They're doing what they were told to do. But Jesus says, what happened to the others? And, and, and makes this curious phrase, was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Because the one who returns was a Samaritan. And we'll get to the reason why that's a big deal in a moment. And then Jesus says to the Samaritan, get up, go on your way, your faith has made you well. Which is another curious expression from Jesus because the guy was already made well. He was already clean. The moment he started walking toward the priest, you know, at some point along his journey, he was made clean. That's the whole reason he runs back to Jesus anyway. So what is Jesus talking about whenever he says, You've been, your faith has made you well? Well, a uh, fun little translation, uh, perhaps mishap, is that the word here that's used to say to be made well is also the same word that is often translated as to be saved. And so another interpretation of this could be, get up, go on your way, your faith has saved you. But I'm, that's not what I want to focus on today. What I want to focus on today is about gratitude. You see... Like the lepers, we often come before God asking for something. Asking God for God to do something in our lives. It's not uncommon for our prayers going up to God to be, God, please do this for us. Please heal this person or help this person or bestow me with you know, all goodness and wealth. Please do this for me. Please do this for them. Our prayers are often filled with asking God for something. And that's not wrong. I'm not going to say that that's wrong at all. But rarely do our prayers consist of gratitude for what we are given. At least sincerely. Sometimes I think we know that in our prayers we are supposed to give thanks. That's, you know, it's part of the standard formula for prayers. You give thanks and then you ask for stuff. 
But there is a tension between obligatory praise and thanksgiving, that praise and thanksgiving that we give because that's what we're supposed to do, and sincere, genuine praise and thanksgiving, that which we do because we have no other response left but to do so. And I'm I'm very familiar with uh, obligatory thanksgiving, and I I don't know why, but uh, whenever I was thinking about this passage, for me what came to mind, and this is a little early, but was Christmas. Maybe not too early for some stores that are already starting to put out Christmas decorations in front of the Halloween decorations, but early enough for the church. Uh, At Christmas time, I think I became really good at being thankful because I was supposed to. Now, don't get me wrong. I was, I was uh, very thankful for, for things that came, and particularly for gifts. But every so often, you know, you get a gift at Christmas that you're just like, okay, I'll take it. And as a kid, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there like ready to unwrap some Hot Wheels, ready to, you know, get that Lego set or something like that. And then all of a sudden, you know, you pick up something light, kind of squishy, you think, socks again? Now, now that I'm all grown up, I, I actually ask for socks on every single one of my Christmas lists. I love, I love fun socks. I always try to have a fun pair of socks on. Um, I, but growing up as a kid, you know, socks were socks. They were the only things that, you know, kept my sweaty feet from stinking up my shoes. Uh, anything could have done that. But, you know, I'd get those socks, and I knew that I couldn't just say to my grandparents or uh, whoever may have gotten me socks, this is a bad gift. You can't just say that to people, even though it may have been what I was feeling. So I got really good at faking gratitude, being like, oh, thank you so much. I can use these. Because you can. It's a very practical gift. But it was never sincere thanks because I wanted the Hot Wheels or the Lego sets or something like that. But one thing that I noticed, particularly as I grew older, was that every time I kind of gave that fake gratitude or that obligatory gratitude, being thankful because that's what I was told I was supposed to do, I just kind of felt uneasy about it, right? I don't know if, if you have ever experienced this. And I can't articulate this emotion or experience other than about right here in my body. It just felt, ugh, it didn't feel great. Um, and so, but, but I knew that I, I had to be thankful. But there were plenty of reasons for me to be sincerely thankful and not just thankful because that's what I was to put, told I was supposed to do. And this is a lesson that I think we as, uh, as Christians really need to start learning. That there's a difference between gratitude because it's what we're supposed to do and gratitude because we really, really mean it. So people in the church have come to be accustomed to the way that the church is supposed to work. Am I right? I mean, a prime example is that if ever... A pastor, I don't have personal experience with this on the pastor end, but as a member of a church, I understand this pretty well. If ever a pastor comes in and changes up the bulletin, you know, starts, puts the sermon like at minute five of the service or something like that, people get livid. 
They get furious because you just changed their worship service and they know exactly how service is supposed to run whenever they come to church. If, if it's a church they've been going to for a long time, they really don't need the bulletin anymore. We just print it off because it has announcements in it. But there's the, there's the bulletin with the list and order of service and everything has to go just so because that's how church is supposed to work. It works by the bulletin. It goes tick by tick. But sometimes we've gotten, we get so accustomed to the way that church is supposed to work that we forget what worship is really about. We forget that worship isn't about us. We forget that coming to this service isn't about us. We come to worship, to worship God, to encounter God and, and, to, and to, to, to declare God's praises and thanksgiving for what God has done. And so, from taking this back to Luke, the fact that a Samaritan is the one who returned with shouts of praise and not a Jew gives us a little hint that this story may be speaking into our lives. And here's what I mean. Samaritans are not good people. At least in the context of, of Israel in around 2,000 plus years ago. And I think we all remember, you know, back 2,000 plus years ago how things were between the Jews and the Samaritans, right? We all, we all remember those days. Not really, because we weren't there. But this is what, how things actually went. Samaritans were the bad people. Jews were the good people. They stayed separate. If Samaritans came around, they were the butt of every joke. They were the people that we made fun of because it was an easy group to make fun of. And the Samaritans did, and, and Jews didn't mingle. They didn't get along because they had differences, a history which would take you know, multiple sermons for us to get through. And so they just didn't mesh. And so anytime, if you're going through the Gospels and you see the word Samaritan pop up, you should have an alarm go off in your head as, oh, this is important. Something dramatic's about to happen. As in with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Anytime you see the word Samaritan, just go ahead and let that, let that alarm go off in your head because it means that Jesus is about to make a point that speaks to the in-group, the people who think that they've got it all together, the people who think that they are the protagonist of every story. Jesus is about to speak to them. And so it's a Samaritan that ends up coming back to Jesus. And I don't, I, I don't think we should be entirely surprised because the other nine are Jews, and they go to the temple, to the priest, just as Jesus was told, just like good Jews should. You see, in this day and age, whenever, uh, for, for Jewish culture, the, you were told the law. You were taught the law, you were told the law, and you were supposed to do exactly what the law said. And the law is the Torah, the first five books of our uh, Old Testament. And in the Torah holds 653 different laws that Jews were supposed to follow. That's a lot of laws, right? And, and Jews would be taught these laws at an early age and told, you obey these laws. And if you break one of these laws, you're a bad Jew. And this is one of the ways that the, 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 um, the religious leaders were always trying to catch Jesus, always like, you're breaking the law, you're a bad Jew, you're doing this wrong. And Jesus is trying to say, well, think about this, think about it in a different way. And so Jews understand that whenever you're told something, you do it. You do what you're told. That's the purpose of the law. 
And so whenever Jesus tells them, go and show yourself to the priest, that's what they do. They hear it as law, as something that they're supposed to do, and they go to the priest because that's the priority, obeying the law, keeping the Torah, keeping these commands. That's, that's what you do as a good Jew. And so they go and do this. But the Samaritan has a different perspective. For the Samaritan, the law isn't priority. Instead, there's a space there for something else to become important. And for the Samaritan, what becomes important is gratitude. Is the fact that as he's walking along, his leprosy vanishes or falls off or whatever happens in a miraculous healing like that. He no longer has leprosy. Do you know what that means? On the one hand, he's no longer in pain all of the time. He no longer has to fear for his life all of the time. On the other hand, he gets to go back into society. He gets to go back and be a person with other people. He gets to congregate and mingle with people in everyday life. He doesn't have to live on the outside of the city. He can go into the city. He doesn't have to beg for money anymore. He can get a, a regular job or do you know, whatever people do. His life has been completely transformed. And what other response can he have other than running back to Jesus, falling on his face and giving thanks because a life is transformed. It's new. Possibilities are endless. And for a Samaritan, that was able to be the priority because the law didn't stand in the way. And so Jesus commends him for it. Because Samaritan knew that there's something more important than just doing what you're told all the time. We needed this outside perspective to recognize that Jesus is looking for something more important than us just doing what we're told all the time. I've said this before and I'm going to say it again. The Bible is not a rule book, first and foremost. It's, it's just not. There are things in there that we can apply to our lives and stick to and allow it to help guide our lives, but the Bible is not a rule book. It's a narrative of multiple generations of a people group trying to figure out what in the world's going on, and along the way they get handed some helpful tips in life, but the Bible is not a rule book. And so whenever, whenever we are approached with something like this, Jesus isn't asking us to just follow strictly the rules. Instead, Jesus is opening our eyes to something may be more important than just following the rules. And that, may, that might just be gratitude, thanksgiving, praise, shouts of acclamation and joy. And I want to encourage us to be thinking about that in our own worship. In our own Worship. You see, whenever we come into worship, we're, we're handed one of these bulletins and we know this is what we do at this point. This is what we do at this point. And that's all well and good. It helps you know, people to stay on track with what's going on. But that, isn't a, that shouldn't become a barrier between us and actually worshiping. An order of worship is just to help guide us along, help people stay oriented to the service. But it's not a barrier for, between us and God. So I grew up in... Um, more charismatic churches than most United Methodist churches in the world. Uh, not, not quite so charismatic as Pentecostal or uh, anything like that. But in churches that were more, um, what's the word, enthusiastic in worship, 
than most United Methodist churches. So I started out as a Baptist and then went non-denominational, and then it ended up in a United Methodist church that's actually more non-denominational than it is United Methodist. And, uh, and I love my time in each one. Each one had its own quirks and things. But something that they all had in common, and I think my parents really liked this, and that's why they took us there, is that they really engaged us in worship emotionally. In other words, it wasn't uncommon for you to see one of these go up in the middle of worship. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, one of these, if you, if you see a hand go up in worship, typically in a United Methodist church like this, if, uh, if somebody sees a hand go up in worship, you're like, yes, question? Uh, no? Oh, you, you're just stretching? Oh, got it. No, I mean, you know, holding their hands up in praise because their body just becomes part of worship, being so enthusiastic and energetic. There were many times in uh, the church I spent the most time in growing up that the pastor would be doing laps around the church because he was just so excited to be in worship. Like I said, it's a little more charismatic than, than most United Methodist churches. Even to the point that at, at, at one moment uh, we had a person come into worship carrying a large black bag. And everybody's thinking like, hold on now. And he sits at the back of of the sanctuary with this large black bag. And in the middle of worship, we're seeing him down there like digging around and stuff. And everybody sitting out in the congregation sees the expression on the worship leader's faces go, and everybody turns around, and these, there are these big flags waving in the air because this is how this guy engaged in worship enthusiastically. It was, this, it was the way that, that, this, that this person encountered God right where he was, with gratitude, with praise and thanksgiving, not obeying the rules, just doing what he had to do to give thanks to God. There was no point in the bulletin that said, wave flags at this point. There's no point in the bulletin where it says, you are welcome to raise your hands now and praise God. And now I'm not sitting here saying that we need to be a more charismatic church. What I am saying is that we may need to start breaking the rules a little bit and showing a little bit more gratitude in our worship. You see, Jews were the in-group of this time. They knew how their faith was supposed to be practiced. They knew what they were supposed to do to follow the law. But it was a Samaritan, an outcast, who understood that God's compassion in our lives deserves gratitude, that before any of the rules need to be followed, there first needs to be thanksgiving and praise, that for just a moment, we might need to remember that all of the asking that we do in our worship, that all of the the demands we have for God, that everything that we do when we gather here isn't just about us, and that perhaps God might just deserve some of the praise in all of this. This lesson here is a very curious one in Luke and the way it stands out. And I think the reason why it's orchestrated and laid out so as it is is to remind us of the importance of gratitude, the importance of genuine and sincere worship and praise, to remind us that each and every one of us have something to be thankful for, no matter what that might be, whether it's just the fact that we're alive sitting here today, or maybe we have a roof over our head, or maybe you know we have lunch after this, or whatever that might be, that each and every one of us have something, no matter how small or large, to be thankful for. And perhaps we might just have something more to be thankful for than we have to, 
complain about. I read the news, y'all. It's actually kind of a hobby of mine at this point. I have like 11, I think 11 different news apps that I consult every single day because I like to have a, a wide perspective of what people are talking about in the news. Um, and there is a lot to complain about in the world. And a lot of people who do complain in the world. It's something that I feel like some people professionalize in. They, they're professional complainers. And there's plenty that we could complain about. But you know what? Complaints never changed the world. But gratitude just might. And I guarantee you, we have a lot more to be thankful for than we have to complain about if we just open our eyes and look around. And so my question for us today, as we move forward, is simply to ask, where do we need to be showing more gratitude? Where do we need to be more grateful in our lives? Where might that be missing? Because a grateful heart is one that encounters the world in a completely different perspective than a bitter heart. A grateful heart is able to come approach other people, approach God with sincerity, knowing what goodness lies in wait, while a bitter heart only has complaints to toss around. So where do we need to be showing more gratitude? And maybe where do we need to be showing less complaints, less bitterness? It was the Samaritan who returned with shouts of praise, an outcast, a person who wasn't in the church. In other words, what I mean to say is when we get too far into the church, we just grow accustomed to it. We understand how it's supposed to work and we just let it work that way. But my challenge to us in asking where we might need to show more gratitude, my challenge to us is that perhaps we need to be showing more gratitude in worship, more enthusiasm in worship, more excitement in worship because God is still working in our lives. Even whenever it doesn't seem like it, even whenever it feels like all hope is lost and there's nothing to be grateful for, God is still at work and that's enough for me to be grateful. And so I invite each and every one of us to explore where we might need to be showing more gratitude that we might become a people who give thanks rather than a people who give complaints. Let us pray this morning.